0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Podcast. Tane, do you remember
1: back in the day when the Melendez-Diaz versus Massachusetts case was decided?
0: Oh, man, I just had a PTSD-style flashback. Yeah, Um, that was the decision that held that crime lab scientists have to testify in person and their reports cannot be offered as business records because of the confrontation clause problem.
1: Now, th- this defendant said, see, under, under uh, Melendez, Melendez Diaz, Diaz, this this is the same thing. The Verizon guy is testifying without having to testify.
0: That's right. We just got a little piece of paper there that gives all this important data and, and, and I don't get to cross-examine him. And the court... Drew, the important distinction, one is testimonial and the other is not. Crime lab uh, scientists' analyses are created specifically for the purpose of being used in a trial situation. Verizon don't keep its data just so we can be convenienced in the courtroom. In fact, they'd probably really love it if that data wasn't so helpful to uh, law enforcement experts and gets called on to uh, be admitted all the time. But nevertheless, the nature of the data is it's non-testimonial in nature.
1: Now, this is a second point. It's important on this hearsay issue, and it needs to be, everybody listening needs to hear me say this. The issue was with the records custodian. If you're going to have somebody, basically, this decision dealt with this very little, kind of gave it short shrift in the opinion, but an expert witness needed to read
0: these records and interpret them basically. In in other words, the jurors would have had the same problem that the investigator had with them when he asked for the first set of CSLI data. What is this? (laughs) This don't mean anything to me.
1: Right. (laughs) So so if the records contained any sort of explanation or if there was an attempt to decipher them, say stuck in the record, that's not going to be admissible. That's a confrontation clause problem. Right. Because it was trying to decipher them for this the, criminal promise, purpose, prosecution, That's right, right, for the purposes of use at trial. Correct. And so that person, and they did here,
0: there was an expert who testified. Again, kudos to the, to the people who were working on this case who, who said, hey, we need some explanation here, and that's going to have to come from a live witness. And, and that person did testify, so that's that right. solved the confrontation clause problem. That's exactly right. And so the court concluded, essentially, that there wasn't a confrontation clause problem here. So let's go to the next large topic that they dealt
1: with in this case, and that was the our our friend Judge Baker, his limiting of cross examination during the trial, and the quote unquote rule of completeness, which is a just
0: commonly misunderstood rule. Oh, so it, it really is. So during the trial, again, we're going back to the facts. There was an attempt to ask Carrie and her and her adult son about allegations that the victim Brian Overseth emotionally abused Carrie and whether Carrie had become pregnant by Brian. Through trickery or by rape. No, this is
1: the he needed killing argument. Right. He's a bad, bad dude. And so on direct, Carrie's son was asked about I mean, the prosecutor's trying to get ahead of this, Tain. He he asked him about whether Carrie's and Brian's marriage was rocky and whether the son had ever made a statement saying he wanted to beat his stepfather or kill his stepfather and whether or not that had ever been said. Now, on cross, the adult son testified that Carrie had confided that Brian was verbally abusive, and that came in. But when the, he was then asked whether his mother had confided to her son about her sexual history and whether her, her husband had raped her, there was an objection and, a, I guess, a sidebar ensued. The defendant argued, and, and, and something that just sort of blew my mind, that the rule of completeness that is codified at OCGA really demanded that they be allowed to relay everything the son had ever discussed with mom because they had talked about one thing discussed with mom.
0: That's right. And uh, the defendant also argued that because Carrie had testified that the defendant referred to her pregnancy as, quote, the spawn of hell, end quote, that he should be allowed to clarify that Carrie had told him, uh, Guyanos, that she had become pregnant due to being raped by her husband. Importantly, the trial judge allowed cross-examination about how the baby had been conceived but ruled that counsel could not ask or refer to the manner of conception as rape or refer to the child as a rape baby.
1: So, important point, the trial judge also ruled that under 403, the matter about the rape or not rape or whatever was of little probative value and was far outweighed by the danger of undue prejudice. You know, we get told three should be used sparingly, but sometimes it needs to be used.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, think about what we're actually doing here, and we're going to talk about this a little bit, but... While the Sixth Amendment allows for a thorough cross-examination, that right doesn't allow for an unlimited questioning. Trial courts retain wide latitude to impose reasonable limits on cross-examination based upon concerns about, among other things, interrogation that is only marginally relevant. Now, in this case, that's important because what they wanted to get into was basically the character of the victim, the, the person who was killed in the case.
1: And that's exactly right. The court went on to notice that the character of the victim is, whether it's admissible or not, it's usually governed by four or four and four or five. And that's usually limited to only spec- the, the any evidence of a victim's character could only be brought in through reputation or opinion. It does not allow for specific bad acts. For example, it would not allow to say that on Thursday, he browbeat his wife on Friday. He raped his wife. That he, you know, shot heroin. That he's a drug addict. None of that stuff comes in, and that's the case of White, and that's in our outline that people can find at goodjudgepod.com.
0: And, and let me note one important point because I don't want folks to get confused because we did didn't try to kick, put all the facts in here. The judge at trial actually very wisely, I think, allowed the defendant to develop his alternate theory, which was essentially that the stepson may have killed his stepfather by allowing him to ask, did you ever say that you wanted to beat or kill your stepfather? And he actually answered those questions and said, yeah, I may have said that uh, at some time in the past. He just didn't let him go a step further and attribute it to, you know, because he uh, raped my mother or something like that.
1: So, basically the the court noted that relevant evidence can be admitted under 4 can be excluded, excuse me, under 403 and they uh, included a quote from this case called Hodges from 2012 where Justice Namias concurred and he, he did it pretty fervently he, uh, sorry, Chief Justice Namius did it rather our uh, fervently. He said, there there remains a presumption in this state that character evidence is inadmissible. And this presumption is particularly strong as to the character of the victim in the criminal case. He warns against something he referred to as frontier justice, that is, that the victim needed killing. You know, we, we say this all the time. He says, that's not our law. It's just as illegal to kill a violent person as it is to kill a nonviolent person, a good person versus a bad person. So, so basically he said, we're not going to just allow anything come in to come into evidence about the victim to try to make it some sort of value judgment between the worth of the life of the victim and whether or not it was legal or not.
0: That's right. Now, Rule of completeness. No, we didn't forget it. We're going to circle back. Um, And neither did the court. Well, that's exactly right. So the rule of completeness, in a nutshell, prevents parties from presenting only a portion of a statement which, when taken out of context, creates a misleading understanding of what was said. This rule is frequently misunderstood, and you and I and everybody else out there listening has probably had it uh, uh, quoted improperly to them at one time or another. But it's often misunderstood to require that the entire statement be presented to the jury if any portion of the statement is presented to a jury. And that's just just not the correct interpretation. No,
1: it's not. And, And the rule of completeness instead says you can introduce material that is relevant and is necessary to qualify, explain, or place into context the portion already introduced. In other words, it has to to clarify or put in context what has already been played. If you want to play the rest of the statement defendant, you play it in your case. Right. right, But but the rule of completeness doesn't require us to play everything because a portion of it was played. That's right. So in this case, when Kerry's son was asked a question about what he had said to police earlier about his feelings about his uh, stepfather, he said, honestly, I can't remember whether I had made the statement to the police that I wanted to hurt or kill my stepfather or whether I had said that only to my friend. So during the process, the prosecutor, as he is allowed to do, refreshed the son's recollection by showing him the statement that he had made to police. And he immediately said, that's right, I did say it to police, I had forgotten. But he admitted he might have, he might not have, but he showed him that to refresh his recollection.
0: And and understand on appeal... The defendant raised that and said the rule of completeness requires that his entire statement come into evidence because he refreshed his recollection with it. Well, that's never been the rule. That doesn't even have anything to do with rule of completeness.
1: Because when you refresh recollection, you don't admit the document. You You can refresh somebody's recollection with a newspaper or a laundry list or a grocery list. It, you could write a word on a piece of paper and hand it to you and say, Does that remind you the car was blue? I mean, you know, it's not going to be very persuasive, but you can do that. But you don't admit the document, that's and right. that's the whole thing. Is that the the court said that document wasn't even admitted? That that statement wasn't admitted, so it would be ludicrous. They didn't say ludicrous. I am saying ludicrous to to make a rule of my Tyson said ludicrous. <laughs> he said it differently though. Yeah, he did. But to um, admit to to have the rule of completeness require a statement to come in that was never tendered. That's right.
0: Folks, we'll be right back after this pause for station identification. Folks, this is Wade and
1: Tain. You're listening to the Good Judgment podcast on the World Wide Web or wherever else you listen to these things. As always, you can find outlines for these podcast episodes as well as any supplemental materials on our website, which is goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcast, and we get that at our email, goodjudgepod at gmail.com we're always looking for suggested podcast topics, please feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And tell your friends.
0: It's how we get to grow our listenership. Thanks. And now back to our studio audience. So, Next important issue covered by the Supreme Court in this case. Retread. We talk about this all the time. Wah, wah, wah. This is, again, covered by our good friend Judge McBurney um, in a previous episode, but it's a 404b issue that comes up all the time. Um, Guyano's decision makes an important point that we do need to revisit. Rule 404b is designed to address extrinsic evidence of other crimes or acts. The requirements of OCGA section 24-4-404b do not apply to what's called intrinsic evidence.
1: So in this case, Tane, they were really sort of talking about what Gallenos did, let's say, for example, when he brought the present to the sister's house and put it on the back porch, he and it was found in the trespassed. neighborhood. Trespassed. Yeah, so that he trespassed, and he might have been stalking. Maybe he was stalking when he crossed over the fence.
0: Well, and, and remember, he was initially arrested on a stalking charge, and then later was charged with the murder. And so that's how part of that came in.
1: And if anybody cares about this, they did bifurcate this trial. That they tried the stalking. They they did not try the stalking in the murder case. Right.
0: They said se- they separated. Those.
1: So that but. The court said, look...
0: They severed them. I'm sorry.
1: That's the word. Did did I say that?
0: No, I said separated them.
1: You separated them or severed them.
0: Yes. Anyway.
1: Intrinsic evidence is defined as an uncharged act arising from the same transaction or series of transactions as the charged offense necessary to complete the story of the crime or otherwise is inextricably intertwined with the evidence of the charged offense. And that comes from a Williams case. So intrinsic evidence is admissible even when that other act evidence incidentally places the defendant's character in issue, which is why it must be inextricably intertwined with the facts of case on trial or complete the story of the crime to be admissible. You need to get that Williams case out any time that there is an allegation of intrinsic evidence or that it ought to be admitted as intrinsic evidence It's related to any other crime, wrong, or act. It's important.
0: Yep. So next, the next issue that the court addressed was the denial of a motion to suppress the defendant's statement to the police. So in prior episodes, we've addressed the Jackson, Jackson V. Denno hearings and also Miranda warnings and similar issues, which arise when the defendant makes a statement to the police. But this case presents a unique twist on those issues that is deserving of discussion.
1: In following our theme of shout out to the police, listen to this. Police learned that the defendant's address, they finally figured out where he was, or approximately where he was living in Hall County, and they found his vehicle parked
0: next to a house trailer. It always comes back to a house trailer. Actually, it was an outbuilding for the house trailer. Well,
1: but they found the, They found the vehicle, yeah. So, so they, a group of officers from all kind of different jurisdictions, different counties, cities, even the GBI, they, they went to the home to speak with him on the Monday after the Saturday night murder. They found the defendant's vehicle parked next to the house trailer. They'd approached the home, but they came from all kind of different directions, as police are wont to do. And they knocked on the trailer, but it was unoccupied. But there was a shed or some sort of outbuilding out behind the trailer. And so as one officer, they, they found out eventually that's where he was actually living, in the outbuilding. So as the officer who had been knocking on the door then rounded the corner of the trailer he really sort of stepped into the line right at the defendant. The defendant had a 45 caliber pistol clearly evident on his waistband and also had a large hunting knife in his waistband. The officer basically pulled his gun and he also, went, he
0: also had a big old dog with him. He
1: had a mastiff. That's <laughs> yeah. a massive dog. Yeah. I've never, I mean, that, that's a great name for a dog, a it Mastiff who is was massive. Yeah. Um, so the officer pulls his gun at the low ready, not pointing it at him, but, you know, kind of at the ground in his general direction and said, hey, man, I need you to control that dog and don't reach for your weapons. Well, by this time, the other officers had kind of heard what was happening and they've come in from all their different directions. And they came up to him and, and secured, as the, the state the
0: case says, secure the 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 handgun and the knife. Okay. And, and and here's another kudos to these law enforcement officers. The guy puts up his hands and they all holstered their weapons. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's (laughs) this. And so they holstered their weapons and, and secured the, 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 the the weapons. They didn't say what they did with the Mastiff, but, but um, he apparently was okay too. Mm -hmm. But the defendant had put his hands up. And they told him, and he started actually to get on his knees. Right. And they said, get up, get up, get up. You're not under arrest. You don't have to do all that. They, were, they never put handcuffs on him. They never did any of those things. They basically said, hey, man, why don't you come to the Gainesville Police Department and let's let's chat for a little while. He said, uh, you know, I might do that later. I got some stuff to do. So apparently the GBI agent, and if you want to tell him about the GBI agent,
0: yeah. So as the GBI, female GBI agent, felt the tensions rising, you know, people have all drawn guns. There's like five or six of them all there at the scene surrounding the defendant. There's been this little confrontation there. The GBI agent says, Hey, all you other law enforcement guys, why don't y'all back off for a minute and let me see if I can talk to this guy? And so uh, she goes up and starts talking with him and he kind of calms down and he says, Okay, well, maybe I will talk to you. And she said, well, I'll tell you what. I got my notebook in the car. Let me go grab it, and uh, I just want to ask you some questions. And he ends up talking to her for like an hour and a half at I mean, the
1: scene. Now, at the, at, sort of after the hour and a half, he got a phone call. I think it was his dad, or he, he identified he his ca- dad. I think
0: he called his dad. and But, anyway, but the officer allowed that. Yeah, she let him take the call. And as soon as he got off the call, he said... I think I need a lawyer. And she said, fine, I'm turning off my recorder. Let's end this interview right here and now. And she left, and he went to go get something to eat with his mama. So
1: proof that he wasn't in custody. Never in custody. Which is going to become really huge. Now, they did present some photos. Some Apparently, maybe the other officers took still photos of her chatting with the guy. They had a video.
0: I think they they may have been stills from the body cams. They probably were,
1: yeah. So anyway, long story short, um, nobody had, not not the GBI agent, not any of the officers, ever advised this defendant of his Miranda rights. And they did so, they said, because he wasn't in custody. And they gave proof of that, that he was not in custody, because he had never been placed in handcuffs. He wasn't in a patrol car. He wasn't free. You know, he was free to leave.
0: Wasn't coerced. He wasn't
1: hollered at and screamed at. There was some heightened tensions, no doubt. But there was there no doubt, but there also similarly was no doubt that he was in custody. So That he was not in custody. Sorry, there was no doubt that he was not in custody, correct. That's a double negative. I think that was <laughs> something I wasn't supposed to do. So th- in, this is an important case to remember. Whenever you have allegations of an officer involved in an interview, that did not advise a suspect or his or her rights. They, the This court, this this decision, cited a case called Rumpf, R-U-M-P-H, and Drake, and those are cited in our outline, for further support that when the person's really not in custody, they don't have to be advised of their Miranda warnings. Now, Tane, it's not in this case, but you can be a suspect. The police can suspect Absolutely. you. Absolutely. But if you're not in custody... Then your Miranda warnings are not required.
0: That's right, and and, and I, I would encourage you that whenever you have one of these uh, hearings where the question is, uh, was Miranda required or was Miranda not, explore the facts. Um, I, I'll just be honest, Wade. When I have those hearings, I mean and we're not in front of a jury. I ask a lot of questions. Sometimes I mean I want to understand what the situation was. I'm not trying to help either side, but I want to understand so that I can make a good factual determination as to whether or not Miranda should have been administered or not. Paint the picture, as the courts say. Absolutely.
1: So, folks, thank you for listening to the Good Judgment podcast. We hope you enjoyed this deep dive into Gainos versus the state. Um This is another case that seems to be a good candidate for one of those law school exam questions,
0: Tane. Yeah, maybe we could walk down the hall and give it to somebody while we're here at the law criminal school. Criminal law, criminal yeah. procedure. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, we do hope that you've also liked the occasional change in how we format our episodes. Uh, We have no intention to change all of our episodes into these deep dive formats focusing on individual cases. But we did think that this case is a good candidate to discuss in depth because uh, of the large number of issues that were raised on appeal and discussed in depth.
1: This decision really underscores just how fact-dependent some of these decisions are that trial judges are asked to make. A very slight change in some of those facts
0: really could have led to a very different result. So folks, send us any emails you'd like to at goodjudgepod at gmail.com and let us know what you think about this episode or any of the other episodes. We truly value the opinions of both of our listeners, (laughs) haha, but seriously, we do want your input to ensure that we're discussing topics that you find helpful and in a way that you find it to be at least mildly entertaining.
1: You can visit our website, goodjudgepod.com, for episode notes from this and
0: any of our other episodes. And again, folks, thanks for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. And always remember, if you fall off a horse, see a doctor.
1: Well, folks, that's all we have for another exciting and enthralling topic here on the Good Judgment Podcast.
0: Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This
1: project was the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE.
0: Thanks and appreciation to the entire University of Georgia College of Law for assisting in our recording.
1: Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media who helped edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness.
0: But nobody can get it all. Tane
1: and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia.
0: Thanks to our NJO graduates who've been willing to help with this podcast series.
1: You know that these are our opinions and they do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, the University of Georgia College of Law, or anybody else for that matter.
0: You can contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise, but please contact someone else with any complaints.
1: But seriously, we would love to have your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. You've been doing a great job doing that. We really appreciate the help.
0: You can also visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for outlines and more details about our podcasts. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Men Podcast.